Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. How you doing? Uh, it's great to be here. I got to tell you something. It was my 65th birthday yesterday, and I'm going to own that. It's, it's not that easy. I'm going to own it, but you know what? I had the best day yesterday. I went for a really long walk in nature by myself, and I started realizing how much freedom. I really appreciate how much freedom I have now, and I've never had this much freedom in my life. And uh, when you're 65, it's much easier to be in the moment instead of planning for the future and like all this other, like what's going to happen to me. And I, I want you guys to know that. I want you to embrace that. And I want you to stay healthy and stay in good shape because by the time you get to be 65, it can be awesome. Okay. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you make it happen, stay active, stay alive, stay curious. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. I have an amazing guest today who you're going to meet in one minute, in less than a minute. Her name is Rebecca Goyette. She's an incredible artist. I have followed her career from the very beginning at, when she was um, in open studios at Hunter College. And over the years, we've become friends. I'm a huge admirer of her and fan and friend. I'm going to, you know, I know this woman. But anyway... Um, and I am just thrilled with the new show that she has up, which is actually going to... Anyway, so I just want to tell you guys that uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is the greatest radio station in the Western Hemisphere, okay? Because I've listened to all of them. And we have, you know, we've really done so well over the pandemic. We have a lot of new, exciting shows. Um, but like everybody else, you know... We're struggling, but our struggle is more important than everybody else's, okay? It just is. And we we really, like everyone that supports us is meaningful to us for real because we're a really small organization and we really, we have a really great, um, you know, group of people and, and hosts and we, we really care about our community. We care about you. And uh, if you could go to Radio Free Brooklyn, check us out and maybe donate some money, anything, any kind of support you can give us, we appreciate. So uh, we did that. And uh, thank you. And I want to get back to what I was trying to tell you about Rebecca Goyette. She's amazing. Okay. So Rebecca Goyette has a show up till Sunday. Sunday is the last day and it's urgent that you go see it before it ends. That's Sunday, May 16th. The name of the show, the title of the show is uh, My Snake is Bigger Than Your Snake, which is at 97 Allen Street. And uh, it, 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 it's, it's, you know what I love about this show and what we're going to talk about today? It's all about um, Rebecca and her relationship with her father and what happened when her father died and she had to, and she sold his house. So it's a really like, uh, I'm really, really, really uh, itching to get deep into this with Rebecca, who is right here. Uh, but I'm just going to tell you like my impression of the show, a little bit of an overall thing, because 
I'm, but I'm going to do it quick because I want to get to Rebecca and I, and I don't want to do all the talking. I got to shut up. I got to. I'm going to shut up in a second. But first, what I really want you to know is this show called My Snake is Bigger Than Your Snake. And it's an exhibition um, conceived in 2008 when artist Rebecca, her father passed away and she placed her childhood home on the market. She started immediately to create ceramic replicas of the house. She, that's to me like my favorite thing about her work, me personally. Well, her videos are great too, but I love her. Her ceramics are just so incredible. Fashioned after a dollhouse set. So she made this replica of the house fashioned after a dollhouse that her father had crafted when she was five. Uh, for Rebecca, who has an interest in magic, childhood at home was designed to set off prosperous intentions. So here's the money. Here, here's like the incident that you got to know about. When um, Rebecca went to sell the house, she the actual house. She she ended up selling it to a man that was wearing a T-shirt that said, "My snake is bigger than your snake." And I think he was a MAGA guy. We'll find out. He was a real character. And Rebecca dressed in, so to buy the hat, to, to get the check from the guy, she dressed in red, carrying a lobster-shaped purse so she could safely carry the sizable check back to New York City on a Greyhound bus. So what what I'm, I'm just trying to tell you that Rebecca made the, made the house, made the whole thing into a performance, an incredible video, at, uh, which is there. There's there's so much work, and there's... But anyway, um, I think the funny thing is, is that Rebecca, when she went to get the check from the guy, turned it into her own performance, where she was dressed in a certain way, um, where she was making fun of the guy. The guy did not know that. She immortalized the guy. She immortalized that moment, and the the performance was solitary really most of it because it was back to New York City uh from I don't know somewhere really far away how long was the how long was the bus ride Rebecca I guess it was about six hours okay Um, so so that was the final okay so you get what I'm saying and now I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca so oh and also I forgot to tell you about Rebecca's bio I mean it's ridiculously extensive I don't want to nest I don't want to you don't need to hear it from me I'm going to post it it involves international galleries uh you know write-ups in every important magazine and all you know just it's really take my word for it she knows what the fuck she's doing okay i don't have to prove that she we have nothing to prove here okay go ahead rebecca thanks for being patient (laughs) thank you so much lisa um yeah this this show i've been creating this show for about three years uh since my father passed away in 2018 and um and you're right i i started with the ceramic house now I made that house really as a, a magical object in order to help me to um, to sell his real house, right? So I really believe in this process of I call it maker's magic, where when we make art that has a, that sets a certain intention, we can imbue the meaning into that work and hopefully you know manifest the things I that love we it. want to manifest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that. 
so it began there and I had no idea that, you know, it was going to become this visual tableau in front of my face. You know, uh, the fact that I almost sold the house to a veterinarian who wanted to turn it into an animal shelter. Wow. I made her into a doggy dominatrix in the panorama. I mean, you know, a ceramic. I, then, so she's yeah, ceramic. Like yeah. you made a whole installation around it's the ceramic whole, yeah. thing. And she's one of the characters you made. Yeah. everyone. You kind of made ceramic characters out of all the real life characters. You made exactly. everyone involved into a character in ceramics. Yeah, and then in exactly. other other ways, other mediums. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and it started with the ceramics, and the, and I made that into like like a diorama. And if you mm -hmm. can imagine, when you go to the show, it's um, it's almost like um, an, a small town, green rolling hills with with the house mm -hmm. set into it, and all the characters um, inhabiting that hill. And then under the hill is this like underworld where my dad is buried. I made a ceramic of him. Um, in the outfit that I chose for him when I, when I had, you know, when what, I ha what, had him buried. So what kind of town? It's a cut. Where is it again? It's like in buttfuck nowhere, right? Oh, it really is. And, and the town is Townsend, Massachusetts. And it's so interesting because it was written up in the Boston Globe as being the most normal town in Massachusetts. It's neither here nor there. It's not big. It's not small. It's not anything. It's just the most normal basic town. Mm -hmm. That's how it would, how it would be talked about. But, mm -hmm. um, but that's not exactly true to me. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's like a town where I grew up where it was filled with, um, you know, macho men and you know lots of lots of drinking classic well, you're, rock like lots of weird violence and, well you you're know, like a weird art you're a weird artist and the people there are pretty normal right yeah conventional in some conventional. way and also and also kind of like conventional in a bad way like you know massachusetts is known to be a pretty progressive state and a lot of um educational facilities like of course we have harvard university is in massachusetts but this is a working class town and it's so like, you it's were a, a weird town. you were a weirdo in a very in a uh in a in a uh white white in a white right wing town yes okay got it <laughs> I can't imagine. So you know what that says to me? I just want I just want to tell you guys. That means that Rebecca's artistic nature is really in her nature. She's not somebody who uh you know got trained to do you know, it was it was in there deep from childhood. It's really in your nature because it yeah. wasn't in your environment. Got it. Okay. Go ahead. So so, you know, so my dad was also super eccentric and and uh, he was an English teacher while I was growing up. And he he was a scholar of Shakespeare and Chaucer, like English literature. He played the organ and the piano. And but he could also play songs like Billy Joel's Piano Man for his friends. Right. Right. So he knew how to like kind of communicate and yuck it up with like. I would call them rednecks in the town, you know, but he also had this other side to him that almost had to be more private because not a lot of people understood those things or were interested in those things, but I was. So he and I shared a very artistic relationship with each other. Um, he was also a full-blown alcoholic. So, I mean, so he, and that side actually melded well with the people in the town, you know, <laughs> he was able to party it up and, and have fun with, um, 
his male bonding and sausage parties, as we call them in the in the basement oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, let me just ask you one question about that. So alcoholic can mean, a, I mean, I know exactly what it means literally, but it can mean a lot of things in a dad. So how did, like, was he drinker in the morning? Did he ever get angry and violent? Like, what, what, how, what, was, what did alcoholism in your home look like? Yeah, I mean, and that that's something that's a big part of this work for me, too, and, and, and trying to unravel all these years of denial, too, you know, but um, on but your on your family's on part. My, yeah, and my his family part. and on everyone, but me, did, too. You wait, know? one more question. Did your dad ever get sober? He did. He did. And I'll so I'll track. That okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So he so growing up, he would drink. Yeah. Morning, noon and night. Um. Like my mom and I would go to the grocery store and we'd have one cart for the food and one cart for the tonic that would go with his gin and tonics. Okay. Mm. Per week. Mm. Okay. So it was like an extreme amount Mm. and he didn't seem drunk. He seemed really jolly during the day. And like, he had a lot of friends and he started, he he went from being an English teacher to an insurance salesperson and he had a pool. So he would be having pool parties and he would be socializing and he just was selling so much insurance while, while just having drinks with people, you know? Um, but at night, you're right. He would, he would sometimes yell at us and throw things and stuff. And then like, he would never remember the next day, but like, and he would, he would just start being jovial again. And and I would be holding on to that. And so would my mom. And it's like, we didn't really know even what to do about it. You know, I mean, we, uh, so looking you, back, we were like deer in the headlights for years. Right. So was, so it's kind of like, it was like two dads. Yes. And mm-hmm. no one would have believed us. And they didn't believe us. In fact, that, right. that he was even like that. Like, so then we kind of have to drop it because everybody loved him, you know? Right. And then you I never got, but you never got that side of him, um, acknowledged in a way no. like yeah and that's that helps I, I just think that leads to it's harder to resolve things when they're not acknowledged that's all go ahead yeah and so and so as you asked um so he died of a liver cirrhosis he was 75 pretty good and yeah <laughs> and, and um yeah he did pretty well because he did quit drinking for the last eight years of his life, but he had a big medical emergency while I was home for Christmas one year that, you eight know, years ago. that time. Yeah. And he, um, he was like, Bex, Bex, I'm, I'm going to the bathroom and I'm bleeding and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, you're going to have to go to the hospital. I called an ambulance. You know, I was like, this is crazy. And he was dehydrated. They, they had to like do all these things just to help him get back into gear. And they basically told him that if he, if he didn't quit drinking, he was going to die. But I didn't even think to ask him that if he had a diagnosis of anything. I just, right. you know, again, right. denied. No, no. Oh, yeah, you're going to die. And then he quit. He didn't do AA, though, but he quit. Mm. And I know that, and he turned into being, like, less humorous, which was kind of hard. Like, I was like, oh, I don't like him as much now. That's I've, weird. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard I've heard things like that about but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay though. But it's like, you know, but there were certain things that would be funny about it. Like, um, the first family reunion we went to after he quit drinking, he, he was drinking some coffee and it was in, you know, in the summertime, it was by a pool and he said, Oh, this coffee's so hot. Bex, what do people drink if they don't drink alcohol at a party? And I said, oh my God, dad, look at this. There's a whole cooler of Poland spring water. I'm like, let's do this. And I got one for both of us and we started drinking the water and he was like, 
this is delicious. This is awesome. And I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. He didn't even know what to do. And then pretty soon, every little refrigerator that he had used to have stashes of alcohol at the the, the house and in the pool area were now filled with seltzer water. That's adorable. Cans of seltzer water. Yeah. So, and then he started teaching cooking classes at the local college and made all these friends. And when they came to the funeral, they didn't even know that he had been a drinker. And I felt I felt terrible because I feel like I said something about it to one of them. And they were like, oh, we never knew him to be like that. And I was like, oh, whatever. Like, let's just let's just do this. He's a, a man to different people, a different man. To different so people. that means you had three <laughs> fathers, really. That's the third <laughs> one, right? Yes. Yeah, so or maybe that so or maybe many. that first two melded into the third. I think it's more like that. So yeah. um tell me about um yes, yeah, so uh he died. Um was it a, I mean what happened like I want to hear the transition from how he died to you doing the work. Like what happened? I think I think what I think the reason that I ended up making all this work is that he has been my muse all along in in so much of my work, because it was like, even having had him as a father has given me a lot of hardships in terms of dealing with relationships with men and things like that. So by making all of these like sexual oriented videos and, and artworks, I've always been trying to figure out my own sexuality, my own agency, how to be a powerful person who stands up for themselves in relationships, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and even I've been even making work that has been direct about him in, in many instances throughout the years. So when, right before he was dying, my aunt called me up and she was like, you know, your father's really sick and you need to come up here right now. You need to do something about this. And I was like, I didn't even know he was sick. He wasn't telling me about mm. it. Okay. Mm. So he, he was trying to hide it from me because he didn't want to burden me with it. Right. Mm. So then I only had like two months of time between when I knew that he was, you know, chronically ill to then when he died. So it it became this catch up game where I was like, Oh, I have to get up to speed here. Like I uh, missed something here, you know? So were you um, like shocked when you got that call? Yeah. And I, and she was pissed off at me. And I mean, uh, I don't blame, I don't blame no, I, her mis- in a sense, but I didn't know to the extent that he was sick. Misunderstanding. You know? and I, right. Um, yeah. and your dad was living alone by then, I'm guessing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And my parents had been divorced for like 30 years or something. Oh, like okay. That. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you went there right away. Is mm-hmm. that what happened? Yeah. I went, I, I went there after like a week or two. Cause I was trying to like figure out what to do. Like, right. I was, you you know, I, I was a little shocked, but then when I finally got there, I, I had to kick into high gear quick. And I also realized like, I need to make amends with this person. And as soon as I found out that, that he was sick, I told him, I'm like, you know what? You have a liver cirrhosis. That's because you were an alcoholic all those years. You did this to yourself. And I said, I'm mad. And I know that I know that you can't do anything about this. And, and, you know, and you're sick and I'm going to help you. I love you. I love you so much, but I have to tell you that I'm mad and I want to say that. And then I want to let it go. Wow. Yeah. And I did that. And it was good because it's like, he was like, I'm so sorry. He's like, I, I really messed up and I didn't want to make that your problem. And I'm like, you know what? We're in this together now. Okay. So period, the end, you've got me, 
we're doing this. Wow. You know, you yeah. know what, guys? I want to just tell tell these people. Uh, if you can do that, what Rebecca just did, you will. N- you don't need therapy, okay? Because that's really fucking like powerful. And I want to s- use the word mature because that's the only word that we have that I can think of. But uh, that's that's like heroic, heroic maturity. I'm going to call that. Okay, go ahead. And you know, and then it went on for a little while that you know I was going back and forth between New York and Massachusetts, trying to help him out, trying to do do things um, to help him in the hospital and to help uh, with trying to sell the house. He already had it on the market, you know. So I started working with his realtor and all of this, and um, and by the time he was dying, it looked like he was going to die on the Fourth of July, which is his favorite holiday. Oh my god! He used god. to have these huge. Fourth of July parties by the pool where he would light off illegal fireworks and, you know, everybody in the town would come and it would just get really rowdy. And um, so the day that he was dying at his hospital room, it turned into like a party. It was like how he always would be. People were coming in and it would be like these this couple came in in total leather and they were um, on their motorcycles. They had their motorcycle helmets with them. They had been to a uh, veterans, uh, you know, 4th of July party and they were on, on their motorcycles. They came by to say goodbye to him. There was, um, you know, his pool table playing, his pool playing buddy, you know, and like different people just kept coming throughout the day. My uncle came and brought us some jello shots and I was (laughs) like, and we were, we were singing karaoke to him all day. And it's just like, by the end of the day, it was like, he was hanging on, hanging on. And it got to be like 10 o'clock at night and he still hadn't passed. And I said, you know what? Let's go. Maybe he wants to die not in front of us. And as soon as I got home, I got the phone call that he passed away at like 11 o'clock. Because I'm like, yes, rock star. You died with your boots on on the 4th of July. Cool for you. Oh, you know? oh yes. wow. So, wow. you know, it's such a mixed bag. Like mourning is a mixed bag. Like it was difficult going through all this and I'm an only child. So having to take responsibility for all these things was something so new to me. I've never had a house. I've never had a car. I'm a New Yorker. You know, it's like I'm dealing with, um, you know, emptying things. I, I had all these like yard sales and was dealing with all these, you know, crazy Hilarious. people in his, in the town selling things at the yard sale every day. I did this very homespun, you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. And then I just couldn't get off the topic. I was like, I got to make, I made the ceramic stuff. I started making Wait, that. I, and I it, just want to ask you, blossomed. I want to ask you a question. So how did you feel like after he died, it sounded like a mixture of, I mean, there must, it sounded like pretty resolved, surprisingly resolved. Was it? That's what it sounds like. As I much think... as, it, as much as anybody's a parent's death can be. I, I think it was resolved in a certain way but i resolved even more by making the work right so i don't i don't think that you know i think there was a lot that i dug into in the work that that helped me further myself even more right right but i wonder if you would have even gone down or like what that road would have been like if you hadn't felt that he was really appreciated by so many people and that you had kind of made peace at the end that's all you know what i'm saying it sounded like it it sounded like uh, 
all I'm saying is that was one of the more um, uplifting stories of somebody's death that I've heard. <laughs> I mean, and I, I, mean, I, I don't, I, I don't mean any disrespect, but no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, at the time, it, I, I think at least for the first year after he died, I was having a really hard time, and like I decided to yeah. make this diorama, like. Instead of getting a gravestone, I hired um, Richard Wilson, who's um, actually the head installer from PS One, to make to make this stand that the that the um, ceramic objects are. Ah. So, so like I had it fabricated, but like I I went to the best, you know what right, I'm saying? Right. I did that. I did that instead of a grave. That's what I said to myself. I'm wow. like, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna make all these objects, and like I'm gonna continue this story, and like really tell my own story. Um, through doing this rather than putting more money into like thing, those conventions wow. that I don't necessarily agree with too. How much do I love that? That's yeah. amazing. And um, So the was, journey of oh, making the work and the so, journey, the, yeah. So then look, with, with ceramics, it's very time consuming. And I, I talk to people when I'm at a clay studio oftentimes about the stories that I'm putting into the work. And I, I really enjoy that process. But it usually gives me like that itch to make a video because I really love interaction too, you know. So I said, oh, you know, I love the the ceramic pieces, but I really these need to be brought to life. And so I started to cast people for the film, and you know, I I chose someone uh, Johnny Sagan, who's a an amazing artist and and uh, he, he owns a gallery in Crown Heights called Ursa Gallery. And, um, and he basically is a bisexual bear and, um, and very eccentric like my dad and kind of has a similar build mm. to my dad. And so we had become friends and it was like, he was the first person I went to. And I said, you know, I really want to make a film about my dad and I think you would be perfect. Um, what do you, are you into it? And, and he was totally down. And then I cast somebody as my dad's dog. My my cousin, Roy, who has a developmental disability, would always make fun of my dad. And he would say, Bex, I think your dad is fucking his dog. And I was like, oh, my God, my cousin has no filter. He's hilarious. He's like my favorite cousin. And I said, oh, my God, this is hilarious. Like, So I cast the dog as um, my friend Olive Wee. Uh, became the dog and she is a she's like a sag actress and she did method acting she's like i need a picture of your dad's dog i'm gonna be his dog <laughs> and she was so into it and i was like this is crazy like then i'm like this is a kink comedy you know and um and then i added like of course i had the snake man the the man that i sold the house to is in the film that's played by brian whiteley who you know i've yeah. performed with for so many times sure and he's played trump in, in a lot yeah. of the films that we have made to Together. great films um, by the way guys yeah and so you know so so the, the snake man is very similar to trump i made that i made instead of him having a t-shirt i made him wearing a red hat that says my my snake is bigger than your snake so i adapted the story of course but it was oh sorry it was like a mega hat yeah did he have an actual mega hat on no but you but know what it was that, he was that type Oh, he was that type for sure. So that's like a way to sing, signal to the viewer that he, who he is. That's exactly. a great. That's a great, a great. You know, whatever detail. Yeah, it was. It was fun to kind of like you know to to think of those ideas and especially it was especially like ready for me in the sense that you know 
that Brian had played Trump so many right. times. Now he's playing this snake man. Right. You know? And and like the the snake guy came to the closing in that t-shirt, but his father, that who was like the guarantor, he came in a t-shirt that said "Proud U.S. Marine Veteran," you know. And like they were telling me that like, oh yeah, we we have dogs, but we also keep bunnies and I, rabbits. And I said, oh bunnies, that's cute. And they said, yeah, we keep them in a cage so then we can kill them and eat them. Oh, and and oh. so I even made the bunnies in the in the uh, ceramic installation oh. so people can take a look for the bunny snake dicked bunny zombies that I, I made. I like the uh, ego. Like all all those things are just like showing them showing off their egos in the most like base way. Sorry, that's oh, so yeah. critical. No, it's not. <laughs> so it's judgmental. Not I'm being no. judgmental of people, but that's okay. I am judgmental. Okay, never mind. Go ahead. No, I don't think it's too judgmental because it's a little bit wild to think about having been in that town growing up and always wanting to get out of there because I was like, this is scary here. Like, I even had two friends when I was young who became serial killers. Daniel LaPlante, you can look him <laughs> no, up. He's really? like famous. He used to kill squirrels in front of me out in the oh, woods. No. He tied up my friend to a tree with jump ropes, but oh he didn't do God. it to me. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, I was always like, I'm going to move to New York City where it's safe. And I would <laughs> sing, sing that Frank Sinatra song, you know, New York, New York by the pool. And I would do dances and I was thinking about my life, how it could be where it's safe. But you, but you know, it's it, there is a lot of irony in selling your childhood home to those people, right? Yes. It's a lot of irony. Interesting. It's hilarious. Yeah. You know, um, and it, it was like, what are you going to do? Like, that's what it is, you know? Mm, mm. Um, and, and yeah, and there was that tinge in me because the, the, the veterinarian who wanted to buy it didn't get the financing correct. So mm-hmm. I, she wanted to turn it into an animal hospital hospital. And that would have made me feel fulfilled as a liberal. Right. right. But it's like, at the same time, I look at how much uh, cannon fodder I had to go with. This was great. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And then I made it, I made like artwork. I made the video, I made drawings, I made the ceramics. And then I also made animations for the film, which I never would have made if it wasn't so delayed because this show was um, delayed by a year because uh, of the pandemic as well. Uh, so, you know? so the whole process of making the show stuck with you the whole throughout the pandemic then? Yeah. And I made a few other works like I made some drawings of um different goddesses and things that are in the show but it's very pretty minor like I kind of stuck with my theme of the snake man to 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 continue this you know solo show mm-hmm. and it it actually was good because it really it really made for a solid exhibition to be able to like have that extra year of detail work mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. I so it's a very solid um well-rounded show with all the different mediums right it, you, know? you got a chance to realize it in the way in the like perfect way for that you you know you got to explore it more than you might have for sure yeah yeah, yeah. so what so was your father's this whole let's call it you know your father's death in the show I mean that's one thing so was that a theme th- for you throughout the pandemic in your life I mean, what was interesting for me as I was making this work, like I actually shot the film in February of 2020. And then, you know, we went on lockdown sometime in late March, right? Mm-hmm. So it, I actually had been 
um, I never have made a film in my apartment before, but I turned my apartment into a set in order to do the film at my house. Mm -hmm. And so that actually, I felt like I had been quarantining before everyone else was quarantining. Oh, that's really funny. And then I felt when people started to die and we were dealing with death on such a huge scale that, you know, and it was so scary and, you know, we don't, we don't want to really, really relive those moments as New Yorkers. But I mean, the fact that we have like, you know, freezer trucks full of dead bodies and all, and then they, they, they couldn't bury people. Right. So they would bring them to like Potter's field or whatever. Right. That was devastating to me because the burial of my father was so important to me and my family and his friends. And I was the, the funeral planner. Like, so for me, I, that got to me so much. Oh, it wow. was like, I could feel the pain of those families, wow. you know? And so I felt that like by dissecting the mourning process in my work and to continue doing that felt appropriate for the time. And it felt, um, it was a way for me to kind of connect to other people and the things that they're struggling with too. Mm. Because when you're telling your own story, you are being universal. It's like, right. it, you know, it, it's, there's gotta be something universal in, in me sharing my honest truth, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and I could see that other people were struggling with mourning and mm-hmm. I was like, maybe this could be helpful. And ultimately what I found was that the film especially was very comedic and, um, very freeing. And I thought, you know, um, that's something that people don't often put together sexuality and comedy with the idea of mourning. Okay. And I was like, I was like, Oh God, I'm making black. Am I making something totally blasphemous here? Like a kink comedy about my dad dying. And I was like, yes, I am. (laughs) You know, it was like, it just felt like very naughty and very, um, Transgressive. transgressive in a way that wasn't like, it wasn't, to shock people as much as it was to be like, you know what, this material is mine to play with in whatever way I want to. Mm. And this is my Mm. language. And like, I'm going to give you this story, but I'm going to give it to you with the visual language that that I use, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and that was like very self-affirming. I could see how, uh, the way you describe your father and, and everything else, it seems, I could see how it's transgressive, but also a celebration of your father at the same time. I, it sounds yes. like he would have loved, loved it. What, what do you think he, or what do you think he would have thought? He, he may have loved it, but here's the funny thing about humor, uh, right? It's like one time, uh, maybe, I don't know, who knows how many years ago it is at this point, maybe 15 years ago. Uh, right. Well, right before he was, he had quit drinking. I decided to make a beer, a vinyl beer belly suit and, and a, and a toupee kind of thing to wear. And I was going to dress up like him and surprise him at the pool. I was having a pool party with my grad school friends. Okay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to make a film with him, but I wanted mm-hmm. to surprise him. Well, when he saw me dressed up like that, he almost started crying. He was like, Bex, is that what you think of me? Huh? And I'm like, I'm like, wait, I just thought it would be fun. Like, we're going to make a video together. You don't, you don't want to? And he's like, I don't look like that, do I? That's horrible. And I had like a beer and a koozie and, and I had one for him that they would match and I wanted to have everything matched. <laughs> and he was not having it. And like, to me, it was humor, but like, I was making fun of him. It was almost like a intervention of sorts because it did, it was right before he quit. So basically I think that, um, 
uh, and then he asked me like, did your mom, did your mother see this? And they were already long time divorced. And, and I said, yeah, she saw it. She helped me sew it. She's, he's like, Bex, I can't believe this. She helped you sew that? That's horrible. <laughs> and I mean, so I had to stop and like, I had to like take the thing off, put it away. And I'm like, I am so sorry. But I got <laughs> my sense of humor from him. But it's like, it's not quite the same, you know? And he, he loved reading about my work in publications, but he did not like watching the films. And he loved looking at all the objects that I ever made, you know, right. but like the films made him feel like he was looking at his sexualized daughter. So he felt that was creepy. Yeah. So I'm like, that's cool. I'm like, yeah. that's cool. You don't have to watch the films, dad. You don't yeah. So um, what, what, what I'm imagining is that like in, in a literal sense, they might've been a, uh, made him uncomfortable, which is 100% understandable. But in kind of the vibe of it or the spirit of it, I think he probably would have appreciated it. Yeah, I think he would feel really honored. You yeah, know? yeah. But yeah. I, I, I think in the actual reality of it, that's a whole other story. So I see what you're yeah. saying. But yeah. um, I want to hear also about the process. So you make the work. I want to hear what the, um, what, what you what you learned or what you, what the experience was, because I bet it was really powerful of actually installing the work and showing the work like, mm -hmm. and having, you know, the opening and stuff. Do you, you had, I, I know I did, I didn't make it. I saw that the show's great. And, uh, you guys have to go. I'm telling you, this is a very, very entertaining and powerful show. It's rare that you get, uh, some ex deep experience and have fun at the same time. So I'm selling this. But uh, the thing is, is that, uh, yeah, like what, so what you, what was the opening like? What was the experience of showing the work? Go ahead. Go. Yeah. So, so the opening was awesome. And the thing is, is that, um, you know, I had just curated a show called Everyday Magic and we had a lot of um, different magic hours where we were having different kinds of, um, IRL experiences in that gallery. And then I, I took that um, into my freight and volume experience. So when I'm having the solo show, I had the opening where the musicians who had played in my film played music live. Wow. Okay? And then I had, I had another reception um, later on in the exhibition where I did a screening party and the cast and crew members were there. To, and we did a little Q&A, but we also had another live music concert. Okay? Oh, wow. And and that was really fun and and it was a great experience um of 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 the collaboration that was the film because actually i work in post-production for quite a long time after i shoot these films and i'm working with musicians who are making original music scores for my films i've worked for years with lee smith and ella joyce buckley who worked on um on this film as well and I also worked with um, Lake Cambrian, a um, a group that perform. Uh, the woman of the group was Olive, who played the dog in the film, and the and the man of that couple, John, did the music for all the scenes that she was in. So oh, like wow. that was super cool. So anyway, I the the relationship that I have with my musicians that I make these films with is very similar to growing up. My dad would play the organ and the piano and, and he tried to teach me and we got into big fights because mm -hmm. I couldn't deal with it and I didn't want to do it at all. And I don't think I'm good at music. Mm. And so 
um, so I started to draw, I started to make performance art, like, and do wild things while my dad was playing the organ. Um, so we could make art together. So like, that was the vibe of, of the, um, the event of the opening. But what was also really cool is that when I started to put the work up, I was like, my God, this kind of feels like Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse in here. Like, it felt very jovial to me, like in a way that was surprising because there was a lot of angst that went into that work. And even angst, not just that I was in mourning, but more like me feeling nervous that I was trying to express myself about something that might not be what people want to talk about. Or like, Mm. it was a new topic for me you know, I'm used to talking about sexuality and feminism and like telling stories through my research, but this was more personal and this was maybe something less sexy in a certain way. Like mm-hmm. morning, is that sexy? I don't know. Yeah. So I was like very vulnerable. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Nervous. I thought that too. I thought that, um, and that's one of the things that really uh, drew, personally drew me into the show was how you 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 were sharing something so personal so uh, but i noted that was di- i i was aware when i saw the show that it was different than a lot of your other work so she's telling the truth guys <laughs> <laughs> and and the process of making the catalog was was very much like that too because i shared some vignettes about my father in the catalog that were just strictly realistic like just and and i've shared some of the stories with you today as well but um I think by writing those things down, and I also have them on SoundCloud, um, it was really cathartic, but also um, it was just good to have a baseline of reality and not have it just be fantasy-based. And, and I'm, I do want to continue in that vein. Like, I'm really thinking that my next film will be much more documentary in nature and and we'll, hmm. we'll, we'll share true stories, not only my own true stories, but even others. Um, so, so I... What do like so what that's interesting. So what I'm trying to understand is that like a lot of your work was sort of about pilgrims and witches and kind of social weird social organizations and stuff. You know, fantasy. I mean, it's your work is had a lot of fantasy. Yes. And uh, um. So are you? So what happened? Like what happened? What happened that you? are there's something about doing something real that chain that you didn't know before or didn't hadn't experienced that's what it sounds like I'm curious about that Am well I- yeah I mean I think that like there is a lot of real like some of the research that goes into those other fantasy based projects that I've done like the the ghost bitch work is all based on my great times eight grandmother my direct ancestor Re- Rebecca nurse who was hanged as a Salem witch um, but I didn't share that as research or as something kind of factual in the work, you know? Um, right, right. But and, in that, wait, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but oh. uh, we're sh- I'm just sure. No, it's okay. I'm just, I, I'm feeling the, the time. It's time. So uh, I'm, uh, so I got off track. Oh my God. Um, the thing is, is that you're, you didn't have that experience on a personal level with your grandmother. 
Like you didn't see her in the trip. You didn't actually, oh, you I weren't mean, that's there. A direct, that, yeah, that's a direct ancestor. That's eight generations ago. Too. No, She's so, a great times eight grandmother. Yeah, so exactly. what, I'm, what I'm saying is, I guess what I'm sort of thinking about is, I wonder if there was something about you that wasn't ready to deal with your actual real life and that you kept trying to get, this is just bullshit that I'm making up, but who knows, um, that you were getting closer and closer to it and that actually dealing with your dad in real life and sort of using your fantasies and all the other stuff that you bring to your art along with the reality of your father and sort of being able to handle the emotion of mourning and also the joy and cheeriness and funniness of actually what that relationship and that life was like has sort of made helped heal you or help you turn a corner where you're actually wanting to deal with actual real life more yeah and I mean I I guess that I I don't know what made me avoid it so much in the work in a in a sense I guess that I might I've always been telling my own stories through these different channels you know of course Uh, um but the directness is feeling more appropriate to me now yeah Um, well yeah I've always thought that you dig really deep in your work and you and it's really personal but you know it's funny because you were talking about denial and how your family had denial and uh I don't think you're somebody who who looks for denial or tries to be in you're anything but wanting to be in denial as a artist but I think that it that you kind of maybe work through some of that and that maybe you're just more ready to you just want it to be more direct completely direct you don't want an artifice of the art the artifice yeah I think there was a lot of artifice and you know and and it was I I enjoy it because it's visual language as well I mean it's beautiful it's fun it's fun to create costumes and and create details Mm -hmm. and to create a visual I will always create a visual and there will always yes. be a sense of surrealism to my work. Sure. You know, I could never, I could never create a straight up documentary and not control the visual because I'm very much about creating a tableau, like making a, 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 a making a video, like a painting, you know, yeah. like everything, everything should be a tableau to yeah, me. You're but, never, yeah. But it doesn't have to be just fantasy driven. And it's like the reality of things is interesting as well. And, and that it, it is like, when they tell you as a writer, like, uh, write about yourself, you know, like what your own like, story, uh, rings more true, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that, mm-hmm. that truth can have a universality to it. And I think that's where I'm at, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's very interesting and, uh, we only have 15 minutes left. Can you believe it? So I want awesome. to make sure that I understand. I wanted to hear what what it was like to be exposed that way, like what it was like to have people respond to the work and what, what did you feel like having people see the work and the reception to the work and not, not whether people liked it necessarily or not, which I'm sure they did. And we never know at fucking openings. They always tell you they like your work. What are they going right. to do? But I just wanted to know like if it changed how that, if, what, what affected you or what, what was significant for you or what did you learn? What was the experience of showing the work? What was that like for you? Yeah. I mean, I really, I really saw that people were interacting with these stories and, and um, you know, they were sharing them online as well, you know, and it was like the other day I posted one of the images um, that is called sausage party mama. And that is an image of my mom when she was eight and a half months pregnant with me. 
And my dad was having these sausage parties in the basement all centered around the pool table. And so at the, at that point, um, a gentleman had a gentleman, <laughs> a man had puked into the kitty litter box. <laughs> awesome. And my mom was freaked out about that. She was like enough. So she went running down there and took an ax and she cut up the pool table to the point of it being totaled. Like it couldn't be used anymore. So she <laughs> destroyed the sausage party, at least in the basement of her own house. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's so wild. And so I made, you know, I made that drawing as like a woman with like many arms, like flailing in the air with her ax, you know, and, and this, you know, the sausage party is like little hot dog men with their pool cues and everything. And it's very surreal. But um, I shared the story along with the image online. And I, I, I saw the other day that five people had shared it on their Facebook. Like, and I'm like, why are you sharing this? Like, it was kind of fun because I was like, I told my mom, I'm like, you're a celebrity right now, Sausage Party Mama. Like, everyone loves your story, you know? And she got such a kick out of it. Like, I gave her the catalog and she was just giggling. Aww. And she was, she was like, this is our life. And I mean, Aww. she started to read some of the vignettes and that, that was making her feel a little emotional and she just uh -huh. put the, the writing down but like uh -huh. she loves the images because it's like she's remembering all these all these things that we went through together in an abstracted way in these artworks you know mm -hmm. and it, it just tickles me um you know that she can experience that similarly to me you know where it's like oh yeah that's that memory captured in this really strange way in my art you know so so this uh the work the ex exhibition actually changed your relationship with your mom a little bit too right yeah yeah and, and did your fact, mom did your mom get to see it she hasn't gotten to see the show um but she has the the catalog she, and um, uh -huh. she was She's in recently, massachusetts right she just moved here. Actually. Oh, right. right. I mean, I would love to, sh I mean, I don't mind to share. I mean, she, she was um, living in New Hampshire and, and she was hospitalized and she was sharing the, um, my catalog with everyone. Oh, and they were and I'm hilarious. I'm a celebrity in New Hampshire. That was like almost the most funny thing about the show to me so far. I mean, oh, that's, like, so that's so cool. funny. Yeah. And people, yeah. So you got that reaction, too, from people who don't necessarily see the big picture of where, you know, who aren't art people. Yeah. yeah. Like real. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So so um, so it sounds like what what was sort of rewarding or one of the things that you really noticed was this that people really responded to the stories. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I, and it, it, I think they respond to it because we all have families. We all deal with mourning or we all also deal with relationships between the different members of our family. You know what I'm saying? So like, that's a lot about what the, the work is about too. It's like the interrelationships, um, you know? So yeah, I think, I think people are responding to it because it's relatable mm -hmm. and you know, I mean, these are all taboo topics in some ways. We're taught, you know, se sexuality. It's not something that everyone wants to talk about um, openly. Uh, mourning is not something that mm -hmm. people want to talk about. And so is um, alcoholism, not mm -hmm. something that you want to talk about. But by making it fun to talk about these things, because the atmosphere of my work is generally colorful and fun and, and mm -hmm. you know, there's elements of camp to it. There's elements of humor, kink, all these things. Um, I think that it draws people in and it makes it maybe it's defanging 
that um, these mm. scary topics. And mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated with that. I'm always trying to say like, how can we look at something that's hard to look at, but make it palatable, make it interesting to do it. Let's not be afraid to look at these things. Yeah, that's you know? awesome. Yeah. And I totally get exactly what you're saying. And I, and, and so maybe in a certain way you were hopeful, but it was a big risk to tackle all those topics in one show in such a bold <laughs> way, but maybe you were, you were, pro, pro, it must've been gratifying. And, and I always think, you know, to have that, you know, to have it acknowledged must've been really, really amazing, right. To, to have everybody yeah. know all, see all that and then kind of celebrate it in a certain way, the way you are. Is that, is that right? It makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think that like, just to come full circle, the the childhood home the the ceramic house sold right away in the in the show and i'm not usually so like talking about sales <laughs> or like that interested in that but what's interesting about that was that that i set out to have that be a magical object right mm-hmm. and now what i'm going through at the moment is that um my mom because of her medical issues um we chose to have her move to an assisted living apartment, her own independent apartment in New York City. So she she's now my neighbor. Throughout the process of this solo exhibition, I just moved my mom and she's a New Yorker now. And it's so cool because I sold that childhood home and now I'm in the process of selling her house in New Hampshire so that um, so that she can stay here and be my neighbor from now on. Wow, yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. It's like you sold your you're, wow, you sold all the homes and your mom kind of moved here. It's crazy during- It's but, really crazy. And I'm yeah. in the process, I'm in the process right now of selling No, but, all, but the, I, all those things coming together, wow. Yeah, and I think that it's a blessing that I sold, I mean, you know, I, I say blessing, not in a Christian way. I mean, yeah, you know, no, I'm no, not a I'm, witchy, witchy way. In a witchy way. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a true witch. I'm not a true Christian. I'm, I'm a pantheist, actually. I'm really like, I'm, I'm deeply spiritual. Um, but I believe in energy and I think the energy of selling that right at this moment means that like, I'm going to have good luck in, in what I'm doing to help my mom. Mm. And, um, and I was really able and capable and strong in my ability to help my mom really quickly because of what I went through with my dad. And I was sometimes like a little slow on the, on the gas, um, dealing Uh with my dad's issues right right and now i'm like let's kick this into high gear and do what is right for me and my mom you know and it's like i have to say that like this kind of growth um it it, it's amazing and it's like what you were saying earlier i loved what you said about being 65 and owning it and it's like i'm in this situation where like i'm dealing with things that like people want to sweep under the rug and i'm like owning it and i'm enjoying the process. My mom loves her new apartment. That's like, great. I am That's on great. the top of the world. I'm on the top of the world I'm about so that. I'm right so glad now. to hear that. Okay, we have five minutes left, and I just wanted to um, see if I could get more of an understanding of what you mean about doing more documentary work going forward because I can't picture what you're talking about. And I know you have something worked out in your mind more than I can picture. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, thank you for asking because um, I'm, I'm interested. I, I am just starting to work it out, but, I, but I've been studying goddess history from all over the world. And, what I, and, in, and in my film, I have like the Virgin Mary and Fortuna appear in my film. But I was thinking, what if I was able to share different women's and femme stories 
through the actual people's, not my story, but other, other people's stories of trauma or family connected stories. And we connect those stories to goddess imagery. I can still make costumes and make scenarios, but with other people and, and working, I love working out these stories through performance and visuals and music. And I, it's mm. been really helpful to me. I wonder if I can share vignettes of other people's stories and effectively do something that, um, that feels transformative to them. You know, I, I'm curious about doing something more like that. So would you like find, you know, take somebody else's story? Like how would that person's story, would you tell it as if it was your own? Would that person be incorporated? Like how do you, how would you do it? I would, I would tell it as if it's their own. And I guess I'm also influenced by um, Alejandro Jodorowsky and his ideas of psychomagic. Okay, and it's like over my idea. head. <laughs> it's okay. No, I mean, well, well, let me break it down. But let me break, very quickly break that down just to say that like he would do these sort of therapeutic scenarios with people and he's a filmmaker um, and I, who did Holy Mountain and whatever very very eccentric films but anyway he did these therapeutic sessions with people he's not a real therapist you would love this Uh and um and i think of it as like it is sort of like a pseudo therapy but it's like the idea of having somebody um work out their story in this transformative performance that's kind of like the the one area of therapy that i know about is psychodrama where you kind of act it out and and would you be like a director of somebody else's psychodrama or something like that is that yeah like a facilitator like a facilitator of that and also a a creator of the visual of that so it would be almost exactly like what i have been doing for myself but i'm i'm interested in like i wonder if i can help somebody else tell their story, but like wow. still, you know, make a film about people's stories. Like I right. would be the, the collector right. of stories. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, we now have three minutes left. So I just want to make sure that um, people know all the details about where your show is now, how to find you. Do the promo shit. Do the promo. Come on, let's okay. sell it. Sell it. Okay, okay. So you got to I, – I will even be over there over the weekend sometime, Saturday or Sunday, but you can hit me up on Instagram to find out when I'll be there if you want to come meet me there. But the gallery is Freight and Volume Gallery on 97 Allen Street in the Lower East Side. That's really close to Delancey Street. And uh, the show is called My Snake is Bigger Than Your Snake. And my, uh, my website is RebeccaGoyette.com. And my Instagram handle is Rebecca J. Goyette. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love it if you guys um, join me over the weekend at the show. Or if you get a chance to go during the week, it's open, you know, I guess 10 to uh, 11 to 6. 11 to 6 every day, Wednesday through Sunday. So I'm going there this afternoon too, kids. But, oh, that's Wednesday. You got, This will be shown the, on Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, just to reiterate, that's Freight and Volume Gallery at 97 Allen Street. And uh, it's a great gallery. Shout out to Freight and Volume, right? Yeah. Yeah. You've been working with them a long time now. They do great yeah, and work. They, yeah. Nick. They just opened a new, yeah, they, Nick Lawrence. They just, they just opened a new space um, in Tribeca as well. But the, I'm like the second to last show in the, in the space on, in the Lower East Side mm. as well. 
So anyway, I just want to reiterate how great Radio Free Brooklyn is. It's so great. Woo! (laughs) No, I, I really, I have to tell you, I did a birthday fundraiser and I did it for Radio Free Brooklyn because there's something about that place, that organization that really... I, it's the only, I feel part of that place. It's a bunch of freaks and a bunch of really interesting people. And I feel more accepted there than, than I think anywhere. And, uh, when you find a place that's so open and accepting, you really want to, uh, support it. And, uh, so go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. Check me out on Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, my Instagrams are D-E-R, Dr. Lisa Levy, SP, self-proclaimed, or Lisa Levy Artwork. Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit.